rolling. Well, hello, Andy and Zach here. We are back at Zahn's in the Nations. Right. We're enjoying a couple blondes. Ales, that is. I see what you did there. <laughs> and it's a beautiful day out. It, it is. Well, and we also picked it because we didn't think it would be. Right. We have it. So Sans has a wonderful covered patio. And so if it, and it's shaded, so it's hot. If it rains and it's hot, we can hang out in the covered patio. Although today we are accompanied by what sounds like a lawnmower that's not moving. It's just running. Idling by. I'm wondering if, I, if the microphone will catch that. I have a feeling it will. Probably. So, anyway. Probably. You can probably hear the plane probably. flying overhead at this point. <clears throat> but, yeah. So, our bartender was adamant about us doing a shout-out to Sans, to which I reassured her that we always do a shout-out. Like last week when we did a shout-out at my kitchen table. We always shout-out where we are. <laughs> We're painting the picture. Right. Yeah. Speaking of painting the picture, I think we'll film a quick video before we leave the patio here today. Okay. So don't let me forget that. All right. Yeah. Sprung that on me. Yeah, that I'm, was not in the pre-show notes. <laughs> I meant to film something before we started recording. But, oh, yeah. okay. So we're going to get a couple beers in and then film something. Loosen, loosen my lips. <laughs> By the way, uh, speaking of filming... You did a phenomenal job filming some content for me on Saturday. Did I? I tried really hard. Yeah, yeah, those videos came out really well. Boom. Yeah. All right. You hear that, audience? Hireable. <laughs> you can hire Andy to do just about anything. Yeah, pretty much. She's got a price. Oh, yeah. I'll do almost anything for the right money. We all have our price. Mm. All right. So how would you want to jump off today? Well, I think we have... We have a couple things. Two to talk about. two things in the in the vault. Shall we start off with the with the science or with the philosophy? Let's start off with the science. It's more boring. <laughs> probably. I mean, okay. probably for most of all, it's probably more boring. But they've, do, but they've do you, all tuned out. Do you want to do your announcement now or after? Um, I can do my announcement right now. Do it now. Okay. Uh, so for those of you who have been. Uh, following along with me, this is Zach Henderson speaking, in case you don't know <laughs> who is who and, and what I sound like. Um, you might know that I am very passionate about uh, in-person learning events, workshops and seminars in a small group setting. And obviously, um, that's been kind of off the menu for, for a while now. But I'm very happy to say that uh, we've already got uh, two powerlifting seminars uh, on the calendar and that are almost, well one is sold out, the other one is is uh, almost sold out and uh, those are going down here in the next month. But specifically, uh, what I wanted to announce is that I am hosting a two-day strength party here in Nashville the weekend of October 16th and 17th. So this is Liftapalooza 2021. It will be taking place at Provita in Germantown, which is one of the coolest facilities uh, around town. That's because mine hasn't opened yet. That's right. <laughs> if you if you had gotten your uh, if you had gotten yourself this space a few months earlier, we would be hosting it at Andy Van Strand and Conditioning. That's true. But well, maybe it's too small. Probita is a better space. Probita is a little... It's a little bigger. It's a little bigger. But uh, for for you OG followers, you might have remembered that uh, Liftapalooza 2018 also went down in... Uh, or at Provita. And my, my... My big idea here is is that I bring in guest coaches, guest presenters to kind of curate a unique, special training, lifting and learning experience. So all that to say, um, Andy, you may not exactly know this, but you know, like in the kettlebell space, well, you've been to a one day seminar. Mm -hmm. Well, so the cool thing about like the weekend long kettlebell seminars and, and certifications is that you get people from all around the country 
you get the top instructors from around the world and you get to network, meet with, work alongside people who are nerds about kettlebells and super passionate about strength training. And it's almost always an amazing two or three day experience. And with that, you're also there for a certification. So there's like very tough physical standards, tasks that you have to do. You know, there's the infamous five minute snatch test and you're kind of always in some way, either physically or cognitively, you're kind of being pushed. You're kind of being challenged. And that's great for what it is. But it would also be awesome to have that same networking opportunity, that same learning opportunity, that same opportunity to hang out with people and work hard and have fun, but without so much pressure. And without so much financial pressure. Right. Because a lot of these certs and workshops are a grand or more. So Liftapalooza is my way of taking all the fun and none of the overt pressure from those experiences and, and bring it right here to Nashville. So that's what Liftapalooza is all about. Nice. Yep. I'll be there. Cannot wait. Cannot well, wait. I don't know if I'll be there like for 48 hours, but I'll be there. Well, it's not two days straight. We're definitely going to take... Camping out there. We're definitely going to take water breaks. We're definitely going to take beer breaks and lunch and dinner breaks. Oh, I'm all so, I'm there for the lunch and dinner and beer yeah. part. Actually, we might even... Um, I meant to bring this up maybe last week when I was over at your place, but um, I know how much you love to cook. Maybe we could throw a little barbecue at Andy Van's place. I'm, I'm literally putting you on the spot right now. Well, we could, except that like, Provida and my house are not close. If I lived in the neighborhood, it'd be right. a lot easier. No, it's definitely not close. Right. But we, um, can, we can talk about but it. Yeah, if we baked it into the schedule. Yeah. So all that to say, um, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag with who the guest presenters are because we haven't finalized. Okay. I was going to say, how about off air you tell me? Off air, for sure. Secrets. For sure. <laughs> um, hopefully by next week, hopefully by next episode, we'll have all the uh, guest coaches locked down. But uh, just let it be known that it's going to be a great mix of different personalities, of different training styles, and there's going to be a little something for everybody, whether you're into bodyweight training, kettlebells, powerlifting, mobility, anything in between. You're going to get you're going to get a plateful. Very cool. Yeah, so, so I'm very excited about it. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm very excited. Everyone can come over to my house and just go order pizza. I mean, we could do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah. October 16th and 17th. Correct. Perfect. Yep. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. So I will probably officially begin promoting and marketing that event uh, probably next week. Nice. Yeah. So very soon after the earliest you will hear this episode. Sweet. Yep. Okay. So planning that has taken up most of my time and energy these last couple of weeks. Except for yard work and podcasts. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No. All right. So should we talk training? What else are we going to talk about? Um, nutrition. <laughs> life. I don't know. Um, all right. So training and fat loss, which we've talked about before, but not necessarily in this perspective. Sure. Right? Well, so to give context... You shared on your Instagram this particular... Sorry, that's a big truck. It is big. Not, a little bit bigger than mine, but not much bigger. I'd say Andy is salivating over that truck. That's a, that's a nice nah, looking truck. That's a, nah, it's all right. What kind of truck is that? This is a Chevy 2500, I think. Those are big tires on that truck. Yeah, we got a lift on there. Probably 35s. Woo! Anyway. All right. So Andy had shared this particular post from Dr. Ben House referencing a study. So set us up. So the study was in 1999. So it's actually kind of an older study. 
Um, the basic gist of it was that you had two groups. One that um, now, let me preface this with this is, if I remember correctly, this was a, a very robust clinical study. So, just and here's why I'm gonna I'm gonna give some details, and I think it's I'm gonna give some details. Some noisy traffic on this. Yeah. Give some details. Sleepy road. And I think it might raise some eyebrows for some of our audience members with, with lacking context. So let me preface this with it, this was a clinical setting under like clinical like um, uh, viewer uh, um, eyes. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, guidance, observation. Observation, guidance, all that. Right. Okay. Profession, uh, professional observation. Right. So you had two groups. Yeah, they were both on like a very, very, very low calorie. Again, these are very overweight people, and so every day they had like a liquid calorie, uh, liquid diet of about 800 calories. It's very low, actually dangerously low tip for typical people. Again, clinical setting under observation, um, and take that also with a grain of salt as far as extrapolating this into the greater scheme of things, which you and I will probably do anyway. But you had two groups, one that did resistance training, like strength training, and ate very low calories, and another that did stair stepping or stair climbing, cardio, and very low calories. Now, what they found is both groups lost a tremendous amount of weight, of, of fat, adipose tissue. Um, but the strength training group lost a few more pounds than the cardio. Good lord. Oh, right. Okay, here we go. Wow. Well, Look at that. That is a very ostentatious vehicle. Somebody likes the Chicago Bulls a lot. I don't think I've ever seen an NBA team emblem painted on the side of a vehicle. Yeah, the interesting thing about that is there's like a um, an SUV that drives around town that's painted for the Steelers. <laughs> okay. I shit you not. All right, so this guy... Uh, who just drove by had the Chicago Bull on the it was a Crown Vic red Crown Vic with the Chicago Bull on the side and custom rims hell yeah okay yeah Chicago red through right. and through mm-hmm. including right. including the rims so I lost my track alright so two <laughs> groups ate a lot like very ate very little calories one did weight training one did cardio they both lost a tremendous amount of adipose tissue or fat mass. <laughs> I mean, at this point, it's just comical. So, both lost a lot of fat mass. The strength training group obviously built some muscle mass along with greater fat loss than the cardio-only group. Sure. Now, the point of this post was to point out the fact that under both conditions, both groups lost a lot of weight. But the strength training group, along with building muscle mass and losing more fat mass, raised their rest resting metabolic rate by something very minuscule, like 62 calories a day. Now, I should say this. As coaches, we often tell our clients that by building muscle mass, that they will burn more calories at rest than they previously would. That is true, but it's a very small amount, at least in this study at the rate of 62 calories per day, or approximately one-third of the glass of beer that I just drank. Um, so it's not a lot, but it does matter. And, and his point was, even if you regained that weight back, the strength training group had met better metabolic outcomes after their intervention than the cardio-only group. So they lost a lot of weight, put a lot of muscle. Even if you were to gain it all back, you're in a better starting place or a better day-to-day -day place than the cardio-only group. Now. This is one of two studies that I've looked at this week. The other one seemed to indicate that, let's say you want to be beach ready next summer and you want to lose a little bit of fat mass. Who doesn't? Who doesn't want to be a little bit lean, shredded for the beach? Everybody does. So there's a number of different approaches to get to that goal. What some research is starting to show is that High-intensity interval training and a lot of cardio training um, Shit, I lost my train <laughs> Zach and I were distracted for a second 
Uh, cardio. And high-intensity interval training. Oh, right. Okay, now I remember. When people want to lose fat mass. Oftentimes, it's been my experience as a coach that my clients or people that I talk to about their strength training workout routine, they want to switch gears to more high-intensity interval training, do more cardio, burn more calories. Right, right. It seems intuitive. It makes sense. However, even when maintaining a really high, I say really high, protein intake to spare muscle mass, and even maintaining some strength training, what they found is that in this high-intensity interval training slash cardio approach, you end up losing some muscle mass. Mm-hmm. Now, for the most of us, most of the time, they just want to look good and feel good on the beach, probably not enough to matter. But the reason that we're bringing this up is that whatever you did to build that muscle in the first place, you ought to continue in order to sustain that muscle when you go into like a fat loss phase. Mm, so right. if you're feeding that muscle, you're lifting weights, you're resting, you know, sleeping 79 hours a night, maintain that when you go into a fat loss phase and you start, you know, whether you, you're cutting calories or skipping breakfast or whatever your approach is to losing fat mass. Again, a lot of people, you know, they do all this strength training and then they want to switch gears to high intensity interval training, more cardio, so on and so forth. Uh, as it turns out, that might be actually detrimental to your strength mass or muscle mass gain that you just spent all this time working on. Right. So, big picture, I don't think it matters enough for most people most of the time. However, if you've been spending a lot of time weight training, strength training, and you want to look good with your shirt off, I would be careful about, what, what do they say, the poison is in the dose? Mm -hmm. I would be careful about how you dose high intensity interval training and cardio for two reasons. The first is the aforementioned study that shows that you might be losing some muscle mass doing that stuff. And the second is that you don't get anything for free. And so high intensity interval training right. and a lot of cardio burns a lot of calories, takes a lot of energy, harder to recover, especially if you're not, if you're doing the, you know, skipping breakfast or cutting calories or whatever to try to lose fat. You're, you're borrowing that energy from somewhere. Right. And, and very likely you're going to be taking it away from your performance under the weights. Yep. So if you spend a lot of time building muscle, it, it would be a great idea to, um, as far as eggs and baskets, put most of them in the strength training basket. I would say 80%, 90%. Maintain the, the weights that you've been doing. Move slow. Enjoy the process. I say move slow like that's relative. Move slow. Enjoy the process. Good clean reps. Weight on the bar. Whatever you can do to maintain that strength and that muscle mass. And then look at diet as your major mover as far as fat loss is concerned. But don't try to tack on high-intensity interval training and a lot of cardio because you may end up undermining that strength gain um, and losing some of that muscle mass uh, or whatever. So yeah. that's sort of the, that's the science segment of this podcast today. You know, it's funny. My sister celebrated a big birthday a couple months ago while we had our first big post-COVID family trip. Older or younger? Uh, younger. Okay. Young, younger sister. And we went around the room giving our life advice. Because my sister is the youngest gal of the bunch. You know, of all the cousins. Oh, okay. And, you know, obviously aunts and uncles and, and my grandfather. So we kind of went around the room giving, giving life uh, advice. And <laughs> mine was be very mindful of your resources and viewing your resources as investments. And resources of time, energy, relationships well and all of those have limits too time and energy at least sure right you only have so much time you only have so much energy that's why you need to view these things as resources mm. and that you find that out the older you get 
Everything is a resource. Thus, allocate your resources as if they are investments, because they are. You can waste them. Some will pay off differently than others. So when we're talking about like training for cardio versus training for strength or muscle mass, I look at all this stuff as investments. What's an asset, what's a liability? Literally, when you're doing a risk versus reward ratio on any given exercise, I'm thinking about that exercise as an investment. So I think this pretty clearly, you know, there's a very clear parallel between like this study and what I would consider the asset of muscle mass and strength versus the, what I guess you would consider an asset of spending your time just doing cardio. Spending your time doing cardio, well I should say, so the asset is time, right? Let's right. say the asset is time. You have an hour, You person A, invest their hour in doing like the stair stepper sure as as the study um as, as happened in the study what do you get what is the outcome from that investment you burn a bunch of calories sure and that has maybe a potent short-term effect Maybe you do lose five or ten pounds. Sure. Maybe you do get that, you know, that bit of shred that you're after. But what is the long term? Your resting metabolic rate goes down, mm-hmm. as it was shown in that study. Mm-hmm. So it actually, long term, becomes a liability. Right. So it's almost like maybe you could say like buying. I I, I don't really know what I'm talking about here. But you could maybe say it's like buying clothes that you're that that are like dated, that you're only gonna wear for like one summer. Mm. You know, it's like ooh, I'm, I'm looking really, you know, a Don Johnson Miami Vice suit. Okay, it's 1984, <laughs> and you buy you buy this fly. You know, I'm gonna start wearing that when I drive my 85. You know, tropical style (laughs) Miami. I have the hair for it. My yes, you do. This Miami Vice (laughs) like white suit, and you're like, this is baller, and it's like a two thousand dollars suit again in 1984 dollars. That's that's insane. It's insane, right? But you're but you're you're slinging cocaine, and like you can afford it, right? Because sorry. So you're balling out for the summer of 1984. That that new Van Halen record comes out. <laughs> Jump is on the radio. Like you're you're balling out. But in 4 or 5 years, what are you left with? You're actually in the hole. Why? Because you won't be caught dead in that suit. What, 1989? Let's go ahead and... 1994? Yeah, let's go ahead and kick it out 10 years. (laughs) Let's maybe say in 10 years, you wouldn't be caught dead in that suit. That's true, because 1994 is like grunge. Right. So then what do you have on your hands? You have this expensive luxury suit that you're not going to wear. And an 8-track of Van Halen. And an 8-track of 1984 (laughs) by Van Halen. So you actually have like... It's like, okay, you could like sell it. Right, but you're gonna sell it for like less than you bought it for, mm. right? So it's actually kind of a liability that you really didn't get that much out of. Okay. Compare that to. So so that's like the the cardio approach. It's the fast hit. Sure. It's great for Shiny for the short thing, term. Right. Boom! Here you go. But in the long term, it bites you. Right. It's it's a liability, not an asset. So again, if you took that same amount of time and you, let's say, let's say if you have an hour, let's say you spent 30 minutes lifting weights and 30 minutes meal prepping. Oh, man. <laughs> or, or let's say developing the habit of meal prepping. Sure. Okay. This is a great one. I love okay. This. So then over those next 10 years, 
what what have those those hours given you those out those one hour time blocks given you more muscle more strength Mm -hmm. more skill Mm -hmm. more skill in the weight room more skill in the kitchen healthier relationship with food in this in this particular example you have taken those same hours let's say three to five hours a week you've taken those same hours you've taken that same base resource and now you've turned it into an asset mm, I like this. so 10 years down the line you're jacked you're you know let's just say that your blood profiles are looking good T levels are looking good T levels are looking good you know and you have you have all of these assets to lean on because strength as we know does not dissipate as quickly as cardiovascular endurance right because because the only real thing of value that you get from like high intensity cardio is the endurance right which hey that's that's not nothing but it's fleeting but it's very fleeting mm-hmm. and unless you have a good reason to develop it eh, let's let's look elsewhere but your strength we know that strength lasts mm-hmm and it's the hardest to gain, but it stays a lot longer. Exactly, as are most things in life. Mm-hmm. The, the right? harder thing is more worth it. Right. Mm. Exactly. I mean, anything that's worth having is probably going to be hard to get, mm-hmm. or at least you know takes time and patience to get. Right. So, again, your strength, your muscle mass, your physical skills are the assets that are going to pay off in the long term. And obviously our resting metabolic rate goes up, which is great, but even beyond that, we know that there are so many health markers that are linked to the physiological downstream effects of being stronger, engaging in strength training. So, imagine if you're in 1984. Mm, I, you're, you're the car guy here, so you can maybe help me flesh this out a little bit. You're forerunners in 1985, mm-hmm. right? So, how about instead of like buying the slick Miami Vice white suit, what if you invested in a Forerunner, a 1985 Forerunner. That worth a lot of money these days. As long as it's garage can be maintained, but yeah. Right. So, so yeah, maybe like maybe like a like a hot muscle car that you take care of, right? That's actually going to be worth something down mm-hmm. the line. And again, maybe a vehicle is probably not the best example, but again, something that. 30 some odd 35 years later you can still use Mm -hmm. to drive Mm -hmm. it's still going to take you from point a to point b you're i mean to some people you're still going to look really cool driving it i get talked to by universally 100 percent of the time (laughs) men about that vehicle about on average two or three times a week and i've been driving it a lot more now that it's like built but yeah two or three times a week i get either head nods, waves, or just a conversation from men about that car. Yeah. I shit you not. Yeah. No, I didn't, no, and well, I didn't do all that for, for that attention, but it's just a byproduct of having done all the work on it. Now people want to talk to me about it. Yeah. So, just like it's, when you build all that muscle, you go in the gym, you're looking all buff, <laughs> and the only people that want to talk to you are like, are the oh, bros. and they're like, how much you bench, bro? <laughs> yeah, so, so hopefully you see the overall idea here between like linking the hard science of that particular study with this idea of taking resources Mm -hmm. and either building that into assets or liabilities right well yeah and to sort of put a bow on it too like in practical terms the number one thing that you probably ought to be doing with these resources is the thing you enjoy the most and Zach and I both, as coaches, would would agree. Whatever your thing is that you enjoy the most, do that. Like, that's probably going to deliver the most results because you enjoy doing it. So start there. But 
if you're sitting here like, all right, I don't care. I could do cardio. I could do high-intensity interval training. I could do strength training. I want to get jacked and tan and lean and wide and thick with three C's. Oh. What do I do? I think Zach and I would, again, agree that probably, it's, as far as resources are concerned, the vast majority of the, that time and effort should be put towards strength training with a appreciable intensity. You know, we're not talking about like baby weights here. We're not talking about like, I don't know, two pound dumbbells. We're talking about some 10 pound dumbbells for my right baby <laughs> arm. Point is, lift some weights with enthusiasm and relative intensity most of the time. If And here's the thing, the investment into strength and muscle mass takes a long time, a lot of work, but it's worth it over the course of one year, five years, 10 years. Cardiovascular training, the benefits you reap pretty quickly and pretty low dose, like low poison is in the dose, pretty low dose. You could probably do one easy, light cardio session a week and be fine. Or hell, not even. Walk. Go for a walk for a half hour a day and you're probably going to reap the benefits of cardiovascular training. I shit you not, the benefits of cardiovascular training are as minimal as about 30 minutes a day of walking. So do that. If you love high-intensity interval training, maybe one to two bouts per week. But, I, I, again, I wouldn't lean too hard on that just because it's hard on your body, hard on the system, and hard on your overall physical development. So whatever that looks like for the person that's listening to this, I would invest most of your time and effort and energy into strength training and learning your way around the kitchen, whatever that means to you with one-ish bout of or, or daily walks, honestly, and maybe yeah. one to two bouts a week of high-intensity interval. Or we'll just call it fun. Yard work for us is more or less high-intensity interval training. Sure. Sort of. It's fun, though. We have, we do, yeah. we have fun with it. So. Well, also, I mean, not for nothing. Granted, there's I, th- I think there's, like, a lot of gray area. I mean, obviously, like, walking on a treadmill versus, I don't know, like the stair stepper or whatever was measured in that particular study. When we're dragging that heavy tire, I mean, we're strength training. Right. I was gonna say it's not the same. <laughs> it's not. It's, it's not, not the, the same. same. Like like when we're doing like farmer carries and sled push and heavy drags, like yeah, it's cardio in the sense that our heart rate is up, but like exhibit A, like <laughs> it ain't it ain't that. Right. Not running down the street. It's not. It's not running down the street. For, for like hours on end um, there, there's a lot of strength going on so yeah and, and again cardio training long intensity steady state interval training these are not bad investments right per se but you just have to understand what you're in for right yeah right. so there's you know if you have a di- diversified portfolio you have long term investments you have some short-term investments. Oh, with these analogies, man, are good, dude. I mean, total body strength, like deadlifts. Those are your, those are your like guaranteed high yield bonds, right? If there is such a thing, right? You know? Well, I think well, and this might, this is a topic for another day, but like financial um, advice. Well, no, <laughs> but um, investing advice. Investing advice as far as like strength training is concerned. I I have been um, I've done this, and so I'll speak from experience. Uh, for me, the judge personally, the judgment of a good workout is the total number of things, total volume of stuff. I would actually almost argue, and as I'm learning as I get older in strength training, I would argue that it's a better investment to spend to do fewer exercises, but much better. Sure. Like oh, like some of the best workouts I've ever done, and some of the best results I've ever gotten were three or four exercises in an hour. Right. Three or four total. Yep. Like, not ten, not three sets of bench press and three sets of incline bench press and three sets of shoulder press and three sets of cable flies. No. Three exercises, total body, with deliberate effort. Mm-hmm. And that has delivered better results. So, that's another, again, probably a topic for another day. I wouldn't look at the effectiveness of a workout in the total density of stuff that you can accomplish. I would actually say that a better workout would would be to cut the fluff and do the essential few far better. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Right. Dig it. Philosophy now. Boom. Let's let's philosophy. So let's philosophize. So I brought my book back out, Mastery. Which, if you kick back a couple of episodes, you'll have more context for this particular book. So I'll spare you here. Uh, and I'm almost done. I meant to finish it over the weekend, but I did not. Mm. I neglected to use my time resource <laughs> to finish this book. But there is this passage and this idea that I wanted to uh, bring up that I thought would be great to hash out with Andy here. And to give a little context, Andy, would you say that like the majority of your clients start out as rank beginners or slash like fitness enthusiasts who like want to get to like what you would consider like an intermediate strength level? I would. I think I've had maybe a handful of decently built specimens, for lack of a better word come to me like like where they were already like teed up and like pretty good to go right and we just dialed it in a little bit harder the vast majority yes i would agree yeah so when it comes to like personal training and like the fitness industry in general a lot of who we are training and working with are like either people who are like just getting started like square one from scratch blank slate or they are people who have some fitness backgrounds but they want to like take it to the next level which you know if we're looking at it like big picture they're oftentimes intermediate beginners or advanced beginners and they actually want to like get to like a serious intermediate stage hmm. is kind of how I it's kind of how I look at it so all this to say how we how we look at that and how we respect training a beginner is is important. Um, so in this chapter here, in, in Mastery, there's a whole chapter on instruction and how you should be thinking about working with an instructor slash how you can think about being an instructor yourself. Hmm. So this subtitle of this chapter is called The Magic of Teaching Beginners. So the author of this book is a Aikido black belt. So I think he's like run a school in Aikido, has obviously taught you know, a lot in the martial arts, and he was also in the Air Force. I believe he also um, taught pilots. Hmm in the Air Force. Uh, so those are like the two examples that he uses a lot in this book. But he highlights something here that I have found to be true in my experience. And the gist of it is, is that when you're working with somebody who is, let's say, naturally talented or has lots of untapped potential and, you know, you throw a lot at them and they just... They just eat it up. Like, you can just always put more weight on the bar. Hmm. They can, you know, they can always push longer and harder. You know, a lot of things just come naturally. A lot of times, there is the... There's the risk and there's the tendency of skipping steps along the way. Hmm. Because they can get away with it. On the other side, you have people who are, let's say, less, quote-unquote, naturally talented where you have to take them through every inch of the path. But if these people are, you know, serious about their quote-unquote path to mastery, they they glean you know, if there's if there's 3 sessions in a week, they glean 3 lessons a week. Whereas someone who's more naturally talented can kind of like blow through and like this workout or this session was like old hat. It's like nothing for them. Hmm. So let me 
read this quote that I have highlighted here. Quote, with the slow student, the teacher is forced to deal with small incremental steps that penetrate like x-rays the very essence of the art and clearly reveal the process through which the art becomes manifest in movement. How does that land with you, Andy? Read it again. With the slow student, the teacher is forced to deal with small incremental steps that penetrate like x-rays into the very essence of the art and clearly reveals the process through which the art becomes manifest in movement. I'm trying to think if I've ever experienced this with a client. Well, have you ever had to break down? I'm sure you have. The, the language is quite flowery here. But I'm sure you've had to, had to break down a lift to, a, to its such basic constituent parts. Where it's like, literally, you're like, okay, this is how you stand on two feet. Like, before we, before we worry about the deadlift, before we worry about the squat, this is how you balance on your feet. This is the difference between being on your toes versus being on your heels versus being balanced. Literally starting someone from that absolute square one. I think one of the hardest patterns to coach is a hip hinge. Absolutely. And so whenever I've had people who have a lot of difficulty learning how to hip hinge, and then I'm finding like, oh, like I'm having to walk it way back. And then they, then they get it, then it clicks. I'm ecstatic. Yeah, I'll, I'll do like a, like a. Is that, you, I think that's, that's the same one. It is it's the same. The same. One. It's our Chicago Bulls yeah. neighbor. Um, <laughs> like, uh, like teaching the hip hinges is, is interesting because a lot of people want to squat their hinge. Right. And so, or or they round their back, or or they do something goofy with their knees, or whatever. And so, the hip hinge is probably the most obvious that I can think of, as far as like walking it back as far as possible, mm-hmm. and then they finally grasp it. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, there you go, unreal. Especially if they can then carry it, like they don't lose it. Yep. You know, sometimes you you take away their constraints, and then they lose it altogether, and you have to put them back in constraints. But so when you have to walk it back and teach someone the hip hinge from that, like, let's say, deep regression versus someone who comes in and you're like, deadlift, and they have it. Right. So you get what, I, I, if I'm reading or, or if I'm listening correctly, um, you get a deeper appreciation for movement quality from those people who didn't have a semblance of it to begin with. Right. You get, like... I, I'm not a movement purist. I don't think that really is a thing. In other words, I don't believe that there's a perfect technique to anything. I would, I'll admit this. At the Olympic level, at the Olympic Games, those guys are probably close to perfect as you're ever going to get. But for most people, most of the time, there's, a little, there's some gray area we're allowed to work in. Um, I do have those clients that have more difficulty grasping something, but once they do, they sort of maintain this, um, I won't call it perfect, but idealistic technique. Mm. Like, they never really forget. Whereas people, I'm one of these people, the second person, where I take for granted my athletic abilities, and when I watch my own stuff on video, like my own squat or my, I don't know, whatever, I'm like, oh, I could, I should slow that down or I should tweak it. Tweak it like the like you know when I'm training by myself I I know how to do all the things I'm athletic formerly athletic I know how to squat I know how to deadlift I don't have to think about it I'm just gonna do the thing and you can tell like it, as far as I've made this comment to you on our um, uh, uh, yard work days that every time I watch you squat or deadlift or do anything it's very precise very sharp very dialed in and I think I'm a little more loosey goosey. In my technique, um, 
So I would say I'm the I'm the latter. I'm the sort of former athlete, gets it, whatever. I'm good. Let's move on, kind of person. Right, and that's that's kind of what I wanted to bring up is that I am not the natural athlete. I'm not the natural mover. Yeah, you can't throw a frisbee. I can't throw a frisbee. Can't throw a football. Can't really throw a baseball. I can't throw. I can throw. Well, here's the thing: if someone taught me, can't if throw I, a kickball. If I broke it down, I, I probably could. But, you know, like a lot of things when you're a kid, things aren't exactly taught to you the way that they probably should have been. Well, yeah. There's also, like, there, there are windows of opportunity in childhood, move, like, childhood development, movement quality. There are these windows of opportunity where if you've never learned how to run, and I say never learned, like, there are just certain movements that you kind of learn how to do through just practice, and in those yep. formative years, it's important to practice them. And if you don't, then you kind of miss. Yeah. I had a couple friends in college who weren't athletic in those formative years. And I could tell when I watched them try to throw a Frisbee. I'm like, how did you ever make it through childhood? I'm one of those guys. Just never, never picked up a Frisbee. So that's why I appreciate the process. Is because I I can see how it takes starting from square one and building the foundation, then floor one, then floor two, then floor three before we have the skyscraper. Right. I appreciate the idea of not skipping steps. I appreciate I I know the value of not just doing it, but rather take deconstructing things to its constituent parts. One of my clients um, in certain exercises she calls it savoring it. Sure. Sort of savoring the movement. Right. Like living in it, savoring it. Yeah. Getting all you can out of it. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that whole like uh, kind of investment asset type idea. Right. It's like investing in the time and the energy to get step one right mentally and physically like physiologically getting it down to your bones as it as it is said here uh in in this next quote getting it down to the marrow getting it down into your dna well i think there's something to be said too for me as a a, uh trainee i think there's something to be said for sometimes regressing movement going back Maybe not to the start, but going back a little bit and like earning higher levels of movement, whatever you want to call it, capacity, weight, whatever. So that's why I like being coached because in a way it regresses me to a certain level. Oh, puppy dog. Hi. Just don't be away for a second, buddy. He's like, no, don't leave me. I have separation anxiety. What's his name? Whirly. Whirly? Whirly. Yeah. Whirly! Buddy! I'll sit with him while you order. Okay. Uh, I'll be right back. Come here. Anyway, dear uh, quote. Yeah. So, so the. Uh, basically, the, the next paragraph uh, that I have highlighted here is. Uh, so, oh, so there's. So the next, um, the next subheading here is the story of the good horse and the bad horse. So in uh, Zen mind, beginner's mind, the Zen master uh, Suzuki approaches the question of fast and slow learners in terms of horses, right? So you have like a great horse just does what it does naturally. You don't have to whip it. Right. Right. So then the next best horse, maybe you only have to whip it once. Right. And it does what you want it to do. Basically, the idea is that the quote-unquote worst horse is the horse, and this is kind of a, a, a grotesque example, but I'm sure this was written, you know, in, you know, 4,000 years ago, where, you know, where, where they probably didn't appreciate uh, animal rights. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not hospitality, but animal uh, Husbandry? Not husbandry. I was going to say animal rights. What's the opposite of abuse? Oh, care? Care. So, all that to say, um, I'm sure they, they kind of just beat their their horses a little bit senseless back in the day. Uh, all that to say, uh, in this example, 
um, the quote-unquote worst horse is the horse that you have to beat multiple times to get it to do what you want it to do. And so uh, when you learn to... Uh, so when we hear this example of these, these horses, most of us want to be the best horse, quote-unquote. Most of us want to be the one who naturally does what they're supposed to do. But this is a mistake, says Zen Master Suzuki. He says that when you learn too easily, you are tempted not to work hard and not to penetrate to the marrow of a practice. So the best horse, according to Suzuki, may actually end up being the worst horse. And the worst horse can be the best, for if it perseveres, it will have learned whatever it is practicing all along the way down into the marrow of its bones. Mm. So that's another way of saying that the most important lessons are the hardest ones learned. To bring it back to a personal note, you broke some bones. I learned, I learned the hard way. So in this experience, have you, what have you learned? You know what? I'll be honest, and I'll maybe talk about this maybe in a later podcast, but I was mentally checked out when I was skiing. I, I briefly have mentioned that in the past, but like I've said, it was the last day. It was the, it was the afternoon. We didn't, have, we didn't stop for a so lunch break. When you say mentally checked out, you mean you were comfortable in your environment? Oh, yeah. You I weren't could really, ski. Right. I could, you, know, I you could weren't acutely aware of what was going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could, I could ski all day. What I mean is, is like, as that day was dragging on, it was a little crowded. We were waiting in long lift lines. I was thinking about traveling home, you know, because it was our last day. I was mentally losing my edge. And we had, we had been tooling around all week. I was feeling a little bit cocky. I was, I was feeling a little bit full of myself. Because I hadn't, I hadn't fallen all week. I had done these like black diamonds, baller over here. I had, you know, we had been cruising all week. I, had, I wasn't falling. I was feeling very confident in my skills. So I just was not respecting the the run. I think um, two things. The first is that. Uh, I think I've read the statistic that most car accidents happen within five miles of your home. And the reason is because right. people aren't familiar with their environment and they're less acutely aware of what's going on. They're right. sort of mentally checked out. I'm sure you've done this. I do this all the time. I'll drive home and be like, oh, I didn't really pay attention at all. I mean, you know, I paid attention like in the moment. But like the routine is so ingrained that I don't really have to think about it. Right. The only thing I have to really think about it is when that environment suddenly changes. Like, for example, I was driving my dad in the 85 on Saturday, and I was trying to merge over to my left, and somebody was doing about 90 and merged over into my blind spot. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but a 1985 Forerunner that's lifted three inches off the base um, doesn't handle like a sports car. Sure. And so it felt like it was going to roll. So I was acutely aware of my surroundings in that moment. And it was out in Brentwood, and I, I don't go out there as much anymore, so I was acutely aware of my surroundings. But, yeah, in everyday activities we do this. We don't pay attention to our routine drive home because it's routine. We get comfortable with it. So I, I am not surprised. But to go back to my original question, you've never broken a bone before. You've never really sustained a major injury. Correct. And it has inhibited your livelihood and your hobbies and whatever. So what have you learned? We're talking about lear basically learning, right? Sure, sure. That, down to the marrow, was a, it was a figure of speech, but I'm and I'm using it as a figure of speech too. You broke some bones. What have you learned in this experience? Well, you know, I, I mean, to bring it back just to like pure skiing, like skiing injuries are super common. I never really appreciated that. I've never really seen anybody got. I've, I've never seen anybody sustain an injury on the slopes. It's very dangerous, yeah. It's very dangerous. And, like, you know, the more I talk about it, the more I hear from other people, like, oh, I, w 
I've torn an ACL. I've broken bones on the ski slope. Blah blah blah. Concussions, right? Now. Yeah. So like, I just never appreciated the fact that it's a dangerous. Sport. It's a dangerous sport, and it deserves respect, respect, and a lot of attention. And I mean, you know, stuff happens. Um, so I've I've realized just how quickly and easily bones can break. Um, I've I've got a new respect for the nature of Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. Of gravity, <laughs> momentum, <laughs> of momentum, <laughs> physics, right? Physics, yes. Um, and I've oh, learned, yeah. you know, not to take stuff for granted, for sure. Just like walking around, and you know, I, you know, I'll be honest. Uh, when I was going into surgery in Park City, I turned on my selfie cam and I recorded a five-minute stream of consciousness video talking about a lot of these things huh. yeah before I went into surgery I haven't watched it oh I haven't, I haven't were you on drugs back. at the time oh yeah oh we have to watch that. oh yeah oh yeah I was, we need to like we need to blend that at least I this. assume I was we need to blend that into the podcast next time yeah because I was I was maybe, maybe that could be our intro yeah just my yeah my my drugged up rants um I mean what is this podcast if not one long drug of rants? Very much right. <laughs> so he's gonna rename the entire podcast series "Drug Up Rant." Yeah. So those are the. I mean, off the top of my head, those are some of the things that I've quote unquote learned. But I mean, even beyond that, like, look, let's be honest. This is my first time undergoing major surgery, so I'm learning what it's actually like to get cut open and get sewed up again I've never had that experience before Uh, the experience of being immobile and really through physical therapy really the miracle of the human body to repair itself and to to fight hey just just like just like newbie gains fighting for every inch of progress Mm -hmm. I mean that's kind of what I was getting like in other words you are the Bad horse again, in a way, right? Sure. Um, and you're now having to sort of relearn. Shit, you had to relearn how to walk. Yep. Like, you know how to walk. And literally, but like, relearn how to walk. Literally, going back to the quote from the book is learning it down to the marrow. Right. Because literally, my bones are broken, and when I walk, I feel it in my bones. Right. Yes. So, and I'm sure you have a greater appreciation for, let's say, lunging or squatting or swinging a kettlebell. Stuff that you ha- you need two feet firmly planted on the ground to do. For a while there, you couldn't do that. Right. And I'm sure, le- like, relearning how to get back into those activities, you have probably a greater... Again, I've always credited you as being... a. a for lack of a better like word, perfect technique kind of person. I don't think I've ever seen anybody that performs lifts cleaner. Honestly, I appreciate that. You're you're a, a master of movement, um, but now you're having to learn how like relearn how to do those things again. You almost have a greater like. In other words, it's almost like starting at the bottom again and working your way up. Now I don't wish injury on anybody. But in my own experience, has been very similar. I've lost use of my dominant arm twice in the last three years. Mm. And learning how to do stuff left-handed, my non-dominant hand, or learning how to take care of myself, like wash my body, brush my teeth, make food. Like, that was stripped. And so now that I'm starting to regain my arm a little bit, like Saturday, I li- you and I lifted, did yard work, and I was pressing and pulling with my right arm. Four months post-op, bicep tear, pressing and pulling with my right arm. It feels great. And then I used that same right arm to, let's say, my dad and I were working on the 1985 on Saturday. I need an arm to do that. I need actually need lots of hands. We need four hands to do a lot of the work that we do. One of the things I couldn't do, I took the back tire off, back wheel off. I couldn't lift it to put it back on. It was too heavy. Mm. So I had my dad help me, and then I, I put all the lug nuts back on or whatever. But he had to lift it and put it on there because my arm's still too weak. So I'm highly aware of my limited abilities and where those limits end. Um, but again, it's like starting at the bottom. Now, every time I go to press something, I am very in tune and aware 
of what my body's doing. If I go to pull something, I'm very in tune and aware of how I'm executing that movement because the more weight on the bar or whatever, the more risk there is. Right. And so I'm very dialed in. Like you probably very dialed in. Sounds weird, but dialed into like walking. Yep. Or lunging or squatting or whatever. So I like this analogy from the book because, yeah, down to the marrow, you kind of take it for granted when you've been living there for 10 years. Right. And then you lose a leg or an arm. And then you have to relearn sort of the, the value in all that. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff, man. Man, we are so good at this now. It only took 27 episodes, but... I told him that also I think we leave it there. Lots of stuff to chew on there. I don't... Yeah, I don't think there's anything I got to add. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for listening. A to Z, no BS. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys.